Amen. If you would, please turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Ecclesiastes 8, it will be in verse 10. Ecclesiastes 8, reading verses 10 to 13. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it, will, it, that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. This is the word of the Lord. But Father, we pray that you might speak to us this morning. We pray that you would take your word Lord, and that you would plant them in our hearts, that you would cause them to grow, that you would do this by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, I can't do this, but only you can. We pray that your word would not return to you empty, but that you would cause it to fulfill the purposes for which you have said it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I think we all know what it's like to play the, the what-if game. Well, what if this? What if that? What if this happened? Or what if this person thinks this? Or what if this person is going to do that? What if and what if? And when we do that, right, we sort of put ourselves through an emotional turbulence. We cause our own distress, anxiety, worry, doubts. We, tend to, we have a tendency to treat things that are not real as though they were. We play these what-if games thinking that this might happen, that this could happen, or this will actually happen when we don't really know whether or not it will actually happen. We tend to think that, or we tend to live by, sometimes we tend to live by things that are actually not based on reality. So we've been working through Ecclesiastes since chapter 7, there's been several different wise sayings. Some are connected to what came before or, or connected to what comes after. Some of, the, some of the wise sayings are not connected to anything at all. It's just a proverb. It's just a wise saying coming from the teacher. And as we've been working on chapter 8, and in chapter 8 up until verse 6 of chapter 9, we continue in these wise sayings, but they seem to be stitched together by the theme of Sin and wickedness. And this passage in particular concerns our sight. And we tend to live by what we can see. And sometimes what we can see is actually real, is actually true, is actually reality. And that causes us worry and distress. But sometimes we think that we see something 
but it isn't actually something we see, and yet we still cause ourselves worry and distress and anxiety. This passage speaks specifically about how we might perceive sin and wickedness in the world, and how might that lead us to live, or how might that dictate how we live our lives. So first, as we consider sin and wickedness as it's written for us in this passage, it might lead us, firstly, to a great outrage. In verse 10, it says, Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. So these passages concern the honor of the wicked, the praising of the wicked. First, it talks about the funeral of the wicked. And it speaks to his being honored in his death. That there are wicked men in the world who actually receive a proper burial. They receive a, a funeral. People might mourn for this person, might grieve for this person, might remember this person in a positive light. When we might consider well that this person actually might not be deserving of a proper burial, to be remembered in the way that they are remembered in a funeral. And then it continues on, and then not only is this person honored in his death, but also honored in his life. It tells us this person used to go in and out of the holy place. So in other words, this person gives an appearance of religiosity. Back then it would have been a person who goes, enters the synagogue, sits at the feet of the teachers to learn about the word of God. This is a person who would go into the synagogue to go into the temple and bring sacrifices unto the Lord for the atonement of their sins. This is a person who might offer up prayers unto God, but in reality is a wicked person. Right, translating it to today, this might be a person who is, might have an impeccable church attendance or may not have an impeccable church attendance, but might go to church maybe once a month, or might go to church on the special events of the year, special events of the year, which is Easter and perhaps on Christmas. They might go to church and offer up prayers to the Lord, raise their voices to sing unto the Lord. Might go to church and make a confession. This person might even take communion with God's people. This person tells us the passage only has an appearance, but in his heart actually isn't one of God's people. But this is instead in sort of an Ananias-like character who thinks that they can lie to the Lord and get away with it. This is a person who has, whose heart is branded with a King Saul-like pride who thinks that they can bring offerings and sacrifices unto the Lord and think that they will be acceptable unto God. This is a person with a pharisaical nature who trusts more in his own work than in the finished work of Jesus Christ and what he's done on the cross. Right? People think that this person is religious, this person is a moral person, this person is an outstanding citizen, that this person fears God, that this person loves the Lord the teacher tells us from what he can perceive that this person actually isn't one who fears the Lord. Not only that, but it tells us that this person is praised in the city where they had done such things, such things speaking to the wicked things that this person does. 
So he's celebrated. He's loved by the crowds. He's loved by the people. And this isn't a person who is discreet in his wickedness, but his wickedness is there. It's on display. People see it. I get this mainly from verse 11, where it tells us that the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. This is coming from a person who is seeing this wickedness, particularly in this person, but this person is not experiencing a swift judgment for their wickedness. So it's out there. It's out in the open, and more than that, it's celebrated. And why would this person's wickedness be celebrated? Why would this person be celebrated, perhaps, for being a good person? It could be because his actions might better his fellow man, perhaps because he's adopted the agenda of the masses and lives to please the people, even though the people themselves are also wicked. It is a person who is of the world, and the Bible tells us that the world loves its own. John 3.19, it tells us that this is the judgment, the light, a.k.a. Jesus Christ, has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. In John 16, verse 2, Jesus warns his apostles that they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. The light comes into the world, but people love the darkness. People love the darkness because they do not know the Lord Jesus, because they do not know the Father, because they don't want their works exposed by the light. Now, those who love the darkness will think that they at times think they are offering a service unto the Lord by persecuting the righteous, by persecuting Christians. And we see this so vividly in Jesus Christ himself, right? The Son of God, perfect in holiness, perfect in righteousness, come down from heaven to live as a man, die on the cross for the sins of his people, so that anyone who places his faith on him may be forgiven of their sins. And even he was brought to arrest and to crucifixion, and many also thought that they were offering a good service unto the Lord by sacrificing the most righteous person on earth. The thing about wickedness and its celebration is that most people who celebrate and promote, promote wickedness don't see wickedness as wickedness, but actually see wickedness as something good. This passage teaches us that when there is no fear of God, man praises what isn't praiseworthy. There's this exchange that happens in the mind and heart of man, which leads to a lack of moral clarity. In Romans 1, it tells us in three different places of this exchange that happens in the heart and minds of men. Romans 1.22, it tells us, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. In the exchange of the glory of God, the created God, the glorious God, the holy God, the one and only God for the worship instead of man 
and animals and man-made objects. And Romans, Romans 1 continues, verse 24, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. Right? Exchange of the truth. This is the truth, and man instead would rather have the lies, the illusions. And it continues, verse 26, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. The men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. So then there's this, because of this vertical exchange that happens, the glory of God and the truth about God for lies and man-made objects and man-made worship, there's then this horizontal exchange that happens, that leads to depravity and sin. And that passage in Romans chapter 1 then concludes with man giving approval of those things that God condemns. So this passage then gives us a picture of a wicked person who is celebrated in the streets as if he was actually a good person, as he's a moral person, a religious person. This is a person that the people love because he's the person of the world, and the world loves its own. And it's actually quite sort of an illustration, but a sort of a modern-day example of it right now with the San Francisco Archbishop denying communion to Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi, and that's led people to you know, be up in arms right, over that situation. Why is that? Because that denial makes it kind of a blanket statement to the world that you cannot love God and love sin at the same time. In other words, the progressive and radical views on abortion, that you cannot love God and love sin at the same time, you cannot love God and love wickedness at the same time. It sends a clear message that there is a distinguishable difference between light and darkness, right? And when the righteous stand up for the truth and say that there is a hard line between right and wrong, between light and darkness, well, then the world, as Jesus warns us, gets upset and gets angry and will even persecute the righteous. But this is what we see today, the celebration of wickedness and the promotion of wickedness as though it were something good. And that might lead us to outrage. Not only that, but it might lead us to question reality. Verse 11 says, Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Or another way to read that is, The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. There's a delay of justice or a withholding of justice. Justice is not executed swiftly, and so that gives wickedness or wicked man a greater confidence in wickedness, or it promotes greater wickedness in the world. 
It's like an undisciplined child or a child who isn't disciplined, right? When if a parent continues to threaten, if you do this, you're going to be punished, uh, you're going to be uh, put in timeout, get a spank, lose uh, privileges. But if the parent never makes good on those threats, the child knows it, perceives it, and only grows more confidence in his disobedience because he knows that as much as a parent might threaten consequences, he knows enough, he's learned enough to know that his parent is not to be believed. This is sort of the effect that delaying of justice or the withholding of justice has on wickedness. So those who are wicked grow in their confidence in their wickedness because they know, well, I may not receive any judgment at all. In fact, I might even be celebrated for the things that I do. This is what it leads to. When there's a delaying of justice or withholding of justice, it leads to celebration of sin. You celebrate what you honor. You reward what you value. You promote that which you esteem. You prize publicly that which you treasure. And you do that long enough, and you will gain a following of people that will also celebrate and promote and prize those things, even if they are evil. But then thinking vertically, in God's justice, we might naturally, naturally be led to think, well, where is God's justice? Why does God delay injustice? Why does God not execute justice right now, immediately, upon the wicked? And that's a good question. And it's fine to ask those questions. It's not wrong to ask those questions. And based on what we know of the Scriptures, we can sort of try to figure out why God might delay in executing His justice. But we also know from the Scriptures that God sometimes is swift in bringing His judgment. Right? Judas, for example, who betrayed the Lord Jesus to crucifixion. After realizing what he had done, he hung himself. Yes, he did it himself, but this is also a judgment of God. Ananias, who sold his property, then came to the apostles, came to the church and said, I sold it for this amount and lied about what he sold it for, was struck dead along with his wife, who also lied. In Acts chapter 12, we have this event where Herod is is glorified, essentially, as being a god, and then God, because he did, because this man did not give glory to God, God struck him dead, and he was eaten by worms. Sometimes God's judgment does come swiftly, but sometimes God delays his justice, because God is long-suffering, because he is patient. Sometimes the reason why God might be long-suffering or delaying justice because he is a gracious God and is giving people an opportunity to repent of their sin. Sometimes it's to increase the judgment on the wickedness or on those who are wicked. Sometimes it might be because God is waiting for their iniquity to reach a certain level. We see this, for example, in Genesis 15, 16, and God speaking to Abraham about the, his coming generations, how they will come back to the promised land. They shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So there it seems 
to be saying that God is waiting for the iniquity of these pagan people to reach a certain degree before God brings his judgment. God delays his justice at times. He delayed his justice in Adam, even though he had sinned against God. And Adam lived somewhere around 900 years before, before he died. In the days of Noah, God waiting for Noah to build the ark, waiting and waiting and waiting, long-suffering during the wickedness in the world. What about the Apostle Paul? If God had brought his justice swiftly and immediately, there would be no Apostle Paul. And no letters of the New Testament that we have here today. Or how about our own lives? What if God had executed his justice immediately and swiftly before we had an opportunity to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and give our lives to following the Lord Jesus For some of you, you were saved at a young age. Praise the Lord for that. You were, you were spared from many years of sin and wickedness and making terrible mistakes. For those of you who came to faith later in life, the Lord was patient and gracious with you and I, even being long-suffering during our own days of sin and wickedness until the right time that we heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and we gave our lives to the Lord. When God decides to bring justice and how long he waits, it's a mystery to us. I wish I could give you the answers. But the honest truth is I really don't know. All I know is that God has his purposes and why he waits and sometimes why he brings judgment swiftly. But with the one thing that we do know from the scriptures is that God's judgment is coming when every single person will have to answer for every single one of their deeds, for every single careless word, and for every single thought that they ever had. And only those who are righteous in Jesus Christ have nothing to fear. Michael Eaton, a professor in his commentary says that in the wisdom tradition, that is the tradition of the Bible, the wisdom, like Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, in the wisdom tradition, the fear of God is the awe and holy caution that arises from the realization of the greatness of God. Again, the fear of God is the awe and holy caution that arises from the realization of the greatness of God. This is what the fear of God is. We recognize the greatness of God, the holiness of God, all that God is, and it leads us to an awe, an awe that leads to worship, where we want to worship the Lord, prize him as our greatest treasure, but also conduct our lives with his holy caution, knowing that we are commanded to live in light of the God who made us, and the God who redeemed us through his son, Jesus Christ. This is what it is to live in the fear of God. But when there is no fear of God, it only leads to rebellion, to a praising of what is not praiseworthy. It leads to a spiritual blindness, a spiritual blindness that the prophet Isaiah speaks to in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 9. It says, For they are rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, Do not see, And to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things. 
prophesy illusions, leave the way, turn aside from the path, let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. This is what happens when the light comes into the world. People do not want to see the light. They don't want to hear the truth. Instead, they want to be they want to hear the illusions, prophesy to illusions, give to us smooth things, things that we want to hear, things that tickle our ears. If you're here, you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, but we want you to know the truth. We're not here to tickle your ears. We're not here to tell you exactly what you want to hear, but we're here to tell you the truth, and that is that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, that Jesus is God, that Jesus is King, that Jesus has come into the world to live as a man, to fulfill all obedience, the obedience that you and I should have always had, and died on the cross so that anyone who places their faith upon the Lord Jesus will be spared of the judgment of God, will be forgiven of their sins, and will receive eternal life. That is the truth that you need to hear this morning. And it is the truth that I pray and hope that you will embrace. So given that our apprehension of how things currently are might lead us to an outrage because the wickedness isn't swiftly judged, it might lead us to question the reality to see that we see might have caused us to have doubts, worry, might be distressed. But the teacher concludes by speaking to us thirdly of this clarifying vision, this wonderful vision, this vision that functions as a sort of a ground on which we can stand on. Verse 12, he says, Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. So the teacher has been put on his secular hat, looking at the world through a secular perspective, a godless perspective, a no fear of God perspective, and the secular mindset has no answers for the perceived wickedness that is in the world. But now he's taken off the hat and now he's put on his fear of God. And that's enabled him to respond to the perceived and the celebration of wickedness in the world in a different manner. He responds to it differently. He comes at it with a certain conviction. He says, though the wicked continue in their wickedness, it might even prolong their life when their life should be shortened by their wickedness, yet I know. What he knows gives them this unshakable confidence. It equips him with this impenetrable fortress of assurance. It furnishes him with this invincible shield of certainty. This conviction to the teacher is what an anchor is to a ship, right? In the ship, it might be tossed to and frayed by the, by, by the waves, but it never goes very far because it is always anchored down deep beneath the waters to the surface. And what he knows is that it will be well for those who fear God. Regardless of what's going on in the world, regardless of a celebration of wickedness, what he knows, what he's absolutely confident about is that it will be well for those who fear God. But it will not be well for those who do not fear God because they do not fear God. 
though they may seem to prolong their life, like the, the lengthening of a shadow on the ground because of the sun. Their days are fixed, the days unnumbered. Because at one day, God will bring everyone to account. Psalm 1 speaks of this contrast between the righteous and the wicked, or those who fear God and those who do not. And it speaks of this, this conviction, I think, that the righteous have because of the fear of the Lord. It tells us in Psalm 1, verse 3, that the righteous, or those who fear God, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prosper. But the wicked are not so, but instead are like chaff that the wind just drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The righteous, those who fear God, have a firm footing because they know that it is the righteous, that those who fear God, it will be well for them, but not so for the wicked. Instead, the wicked have nothing to stand on. They have no roots that dig deep into the ground to keep them grounded and stable, but instead are like chaff that the wind just simply picks up and drives away and will be driven away by the furious wind of the wrath of God. It's telling us that the life of the wicked may put on a good show, but at the end of the day, it has no substance. It has no substance, has no value. It's like those delicious, yummy garlic breads from Olive Garden. You've had those before. Really, really good, but you all have to admit that they have no substantive value to one's health, right? It has no value. It has nothing good for you in your health. That's sort of like the ways of the wicked. And now you'll probably never eat those Olive Garden Italian bread ever again the same. You look at it and oh, it's wickedness. So he has this confidence. And from where does he draw this confidence, this convictions of what he knows that allows him to perceive what he sees differently? And it comes from divine revelation. It comes from what he knows about the God who has revealed himself. He probably drew from, 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 uh, excuse me, from Exodus chapter 34, where God reveals himself to Moses. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty." visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. What he knows about God is that this God is merciful, that he is gracious, that he is slow to anger, that he is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, but is also a God who is holy and will not forgive iniquity and transgression and sin of those who do not fear him. In Romans 4, it speaks of this clarifying vision of Abraham. It is this vision of God, that what we know about God and what we know about Jesus Christ, that determines, that helps us to live when there is wickedness in the world. Romans 4, 18, it tells us about Abraham that in hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. 
so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. This is the man who lived by faith, who lived by what he knew about God. If he perceived by, if he perceives the world, he perceived his life by his senses, he would have given up already a long time ago before he saw the promise. Abraham, you're as good as dead. You're a hundred years old. Your wife hasn't been able to bear children. Your wife is past the childbearing age. It's over for you, Abraham. But he didn't perceive his life that way, by what he sensed, by what he could see. Instead, he lived his life by what God told him, by what God had promised. Hebrews 11.1 1 tells us, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The one who fears God is equipped with the eyes of faith. Yes, they see the world. They see their own circumstances. Tragedy is real. Wickedness is real. Injustice is real. And these things affect us in different ways. But we also see them through the eyes of faith. It is the eyes of faith that help us to continue to stand on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. The leaves of the tree may be tossed to and fro by the winds, but that tree isn't moving anywhere because its trunk is thick and the roots are thick and the roots dig down deep into the ground. That is the perfect picture of the one who fears God the one who fears God. It's like the man who's born blind in the Gospel of John. When he receives his sight, he receives more than just his sight. He's able to see much more than his surrounding with his physical eyes. But what he also gains is his eyes of faith. He's able to see Christ for who he really is so that by the end of that event, towards the end of that chapter, it concludes with him bowing down before Jesus because he has embraced Jesus as the Messiah, the Savior of the world. So this is stark contrast given to us here. The wicked and the ones who fear God. And the one who fears God sees the wickedness of the world, sees the wickedness that is happening but he continues, or she continues to fix her eyes on Jesus Christ, continues to look to the Lord Jesus, and is not driven to despair, is not driven to hopelessness, doesn't give up, because they know that Jesus, the Savior who is there, who is with his people and will bring his judgment one day, and will establish the righteous, and is establishing the righteous, and will reward the righteous. 
the one last thing I want to leave you with. So we walk in the fear of the Lord, and this equips us with this clarifying vision of Jesus Christ. When we recognize and realize the greatness of Christ, this produces certain things in our lives. It affects how we live. And we can spend hours talking about how a vision of Christ changes our lives. But just to name a few, one, at least to an enduring patience. Romans 8.24 tells us, For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is not seen... Hope that is, now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he does not for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Having this clarifying vision of Jesus Christ leads to an enduring patience, but this isn't sort of a slack patience, this isn't a lazy patience, but it is actually an active patience, an obedient patience. It's like the patience that Noah had when he constructed the ark. They say that it took somewhere between at least 55 to 75 years for Noah to construct and complete that ark. His patience was an active patience. It was a patience that was working towards something. His patience showed that he was preparing for something. And so our patience has to show that we're preparing for something, that we're looking forward to something. It cannot be a slack kind of patience. And what does a slack kind of patience look like? It might be a slack in one's personal holiness. It's sort of permitting sin in one's own life without any desire to do anything about it. A slackness perhaps in reading the word and in prayer. A slack in fellowship and meeting with God's people on a regular basis. might be a slack in your parenting and raising your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Right? Does your life look like you are getting ready for something, namely heaven? So at least an enduring patience, an active patience, something else that it will produce is a praising of what is praiseworthy. Right? You see this in the... In, in this, this section in Ecclesiastes, that there is a celebration of wickedness. But when we have a clarifying vision of Christ, when we apprehend Christ, when we realize the greatness of Christ, it leads us to praise what is praiseworthy. Philippians 4.8 says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Now, this passage tells us about what we should be thinking about, but I think this also gives us a list of what we should be praising as well. We should be praising whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable. Whatever the Bible commends is what we should celebrate and what we should praise. Whatever the Lord honors in his word is what we should also honor. So we can consider creation itself praiseworthy because God created it and God created it for the enjoyment of man. So we can rejoice in the creation that God has made. We can rejoice and celebrate marriages, whether they are unbelievers or not. We can rejoice because marriage is instituted by God. And when a marriage celebrates its marriage year after year, that's something to celebrate. That's something that the Bible commends. 
We should celebrate right, children, and when families have children, we celebrate that. We honor that. Yes, we celebrate mothers who are also out working in the world, but we should also celebrate and rejoice and honor mothers who also stay at home. We should rejoice and honor when men go to work each and every day to provide for their households. The other thing that we should commend, or the scriptures commend, right, is, is one another. And personally, I've been, sort of, I've been wrestling with this. I've been convicted by this in several different ways this past week. So I've been thinking about this passage and different things that sort of come up, things that I've read. And in the New Testament, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but the Apostle Paul has this pattern of commending others. Like Philippians is a case example where he commends to the church Epaphroditus, this servant who's come, who's gone out of his way to serve the Apostle Paul. There's examples of this in his New Testament letters, he's always commending someone. This is somebody that you should praise. This is somebody that you should commend. This is somebody you should honor. This is somebody that you should think about because this person has done this for me or others. I think we, maybe I'm just the only one, but sometimes we might have this sort of this mentality, this idea that, well, if nobody is commending me, if nobody is doing, if nobody's saying, hey, good job, then I should just assume I'm doing a good job because I'm not hearing any negative feedback. Or the opposite way, right? Well, we might think, well, you should just assume that you're doing a good job because I'm not coming to you with a negative critique or feedback or evaluating how you're doing. And while some of that may actually be true, it is actually nice to hear, hey, you're doing great at this. Hey, this was really well done. Hey, this was, this was a really good job. And some people just are gifted at that naturally. But some are not. And I would admit, I'm not naturally gifted at that. And it's something I have to work at and am committing to working at. But it is nice to hear at times when somebody is appreciative of things that you do. You're not necessarily looking for somebody to boast your ego or pride. But there's a way of honoring one another without boosting someone's personal pride. So it's nice to have to follow the example of the Apostle Paul in commending one another. I, for one, am thankful. I'm thankful for this church. I cannot imagine being anywhere else, quite frankly. I don't want to be anywhere else. The Lord has been good to me and my family through all of you. It's been such a joy to continue to serve alongside with you in ministry. I'm so thankful for many of you who have who continue to devote time and energy and your resources to serving other people, to serving the church, to serving in different ministries in different ways. And I'm sorry that I don't tell you that often enough, and I should. But right, we have to go the extra step. Right? If this isn't your pattern, if this isn't something that is natural to your personality, Consider the person of Christ. We're called to imitate Christ. We're called to imitate the Apostle Paul who imitated Christ. And Paul commands us to imitate him. And this is something that he did regularly. And that is he, was, he would commend others to others. So let us be good at that as well. 
Then lastly, when we have this vision of Christ, when we set our sights on Christ, it leads to a zealous pursuit of holiness. 2 Corinthians 3.18 tells us that with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The desire of every Christian is to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Right? If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, that should be one of your greatest desires, to become more and more like Christ. Is that your desire? Do you desire that? Do you desire to be progressively sanctified into his resemblance? Do you desire to be gradually transformed into his likeness? A few years ago, our neighbors down our street were selling their house, and we walked to their house and talked with them outside. They invited us into their home, and and not that we ever, not that we invite ourselves into people's houses, but we actually enjoy looking at other people's houses in our neighborhood because you can tell that the same builder build all the same all the houses because they're all the same, and even the inside is the same. But over the years, people have updated them, and so they are, the inside is different than some. And when we went into this neighbor's house, we saw their kitchen. We were blown away by their kitchen. And ours were still sort of original. And we saw their kitchen. We just said how much we liked it. And they actually had the blueprints of their new kitchen remodel, and they gave it to us. And so we decided that we would copy their kitchen exactly how it was, detail for detail. I mean, we changed the, I mean, we didn't have the same colors, but everything else was exactly the same because we liked it that much. When we behold the Lord Jesus Christ, or if you desire to be conformed to the image of Christ, when you look at Christ, your desire should be, I want to be exactly like that. I want to imitate Jesus' strength. I want to imitate Jesus' zeal for holiness. I want to imitate Jesus' confidence. I want to imitate Jesus' boldness in preaching the gospel to others. I want to imitate everything about the Lord Jesus to be more conformant to his image. Our desire should be to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ gradually, day by day. And it does happen as we continue to behold Jesus each and every day. Seeing Christ through the eyes of faith should give to us an enduring confidence that no matter what happens in the world, no matter what happens in our lives, no matter what the world is like, we remain steadfast in our hope and assurance that it will be well for those who fear the Lord. And just as we sang earlier, that it is already well for those who are robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for equipping us with the eyes of faith. This, these eyes of faith help us to see past the confusion 
the wickedness of the world and see the Christ who is there. The Christ who has conquered death. The Christ who has purchased us through his precious blood. Lord, help us to continue to behold the Lord Jesus. Help us to behold you, Lord, through your word, through prayer, through our gatherings here on Sunday mornings, through the fellowship of the saints, through Bible studies. Help us to behold the Lord Jesus in our own, just in our own personal times in the word. Lord, increase our desire to be conformed to the image of Christ. Lord, help us to not be so distracted, to fight every distraction that would seek to turn our attention away from Christ. Help us to recognize what those things are or what they might be in our lives so that we may fix our eyes on you, Lord Jesus, because our desire is not only to be with you where you are, to see your glory, but we desire also to be conformed into your image, which will one day happen when we behold you face to face. And as we wait for that day, let us actively wait. Let us actively pursue you. And let us also never relent in praising those things that are praiseworthy, that are according to your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.